This is Josh Smith, pastor of Prince Avenue Baptist Church in Bogart, Georgia. Our mission at Prince is simple, leading people to trust and follow Jesus. And it's our hope that this sermon would help accomplish that mission. For more information about our church, visit us at pabc.org. We'll take your Bibles as we continue to worship this morning to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, as we continue our study through the book of Hebrews, we'll be looking at the end of the chapter, verses 15 through 28 this morning. Hebrews 9, 15 through 28. Early in my ministry, I remember a Sunday in which we sang the old rugged cross. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. How I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down. I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. I remember standing in the foyer after that Sunday morning service and I saw an older man who I knew well, make a beeline to me and I knew exactly what he was coming to say. He was coming to say, Pastor, thank you for singing the old rugged cross. We've been waiting for this song. We need more of those songs. I just knew that's what he was coming to say. He walked right up to me and shook my hand and surprised me by what he said. He said, Pastor, why are we still clinging to the old rugged cross? Like I know that that it is the symbol of what Christ has done for us, but he's not on the cross anymore. He was buried and he rose, and right now he's seated at the right hand of the Father, and so why are we holding on to a cross when we should be holding on to the resurrection? And why are we thinking and singing about this symbol when we should be thinking about Christ himself? I don't understand why we're still singing and clinging to an old rugged cross. Well, It took me by surprise. I wasn't expecting that question at all. My immediate response wanted to be because my dad taught me that if a song doesn't mention the blood or the cross, it's not worth singing on Sunday morning, which is still exactly what I believe. But it's a a good question. I mean, why is this the central symbol of everything that we believe? Why is there one on the wall behind me? Why is there an even bigger one on the outside of our building? Why is it that our logo is is made up of two crosses, one pointed inwardly, one pointed outwardly? The inward cross reminding us of the cross-centered life, leading people to trust and follow Jesus. The external cross pointing outwards, reminding us that our mission and our message, everything is about the cross of, of Jesus Christ. But why is this our symbol? Why is it this something that we rejoice in? Why did the Apostle Paul say, may I never boast in anything but the cross of Jesus Christ? Why did Paul say at the church in Corinth, looking back on his time there, why did he say that I decided to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ and Christ crucified? Paul saying, when I came to you to preach The only thing I wanted you to hear about is the cross of Jesus Christ. The only thing I wanted you to remember is the cross of Jesus Christ. That's the only message I have for you is the cross. Why is the bloody 
death of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ central to our faith, why do we cherish the old rugged cross? Well, the end of Hebrews 9 tells us why we cherish the old rugged cross. And it tells us this in the context of talking to us about the covenants. If you've been with us for the past few weeks, we've been talking about the way in which God makes covenants with his people and has done so all the way since the Garden of Eden. A covenant is just an agreement between people. It is an arrangement between people. And so God, in setting the terms of a relationship, always establishes covenants. Since creation, God has been doing this. And there are many covenants in the Old Testament in the way that we really understand the Old Testament, is we follow the covenants, these agreements that God has made. But Hebrews 8 tells us that every one of these Old Testament covenants in verse 5 are just copies or shadows of something more. That they're helpful for us and we need these covenants and they certainly do trace the way in which God is moving with his people. But every one of those covenants are reminding us that there's a better covenant to come. A new covenant promised for us in Jeremiah 31 and given to us, quoted in Hebrews chapter 8. This new covenant that was promised is a covenant that's not about external systems. It's not about external sacrifices. It does away with all of the external rituals. Instead, it's a covenant about internal regeneration. Meaning that instead of God attempting to make us better by doing external things, God gives us a new heart. He takes away our heart of stone that has no spiritual life and he replaces it with a heart of flesh that beats for him and loves him and enjoys him. In the new covenant, there will be something altogether new. That God will put his very presence inside of our heart. That God will be in us, Christ in us, the hope of glory. God dwelling us, giving us new desires and affections and longings for himself. It's a covenant that really brings us into everything that God has always wanted to give us. It is God attempting to bring us into the life that he created us for and called us for. It is God bringing us into the life that we so desperately need to fill the void in our hearts and all of this is promised in this wonderful new covenant. But the question is, how do we get in on all of that? So here are all the blessings that God wants to give us and all of this new life. And I had someone come to me at the end of the first service and say, Pastor, I've been bound for most of my life in a church that taught rituals and taught systems in order to make me right. And it just brought death. It didn't bring life. Thank you for preaching the new covenant but how do we get in on that? Like how do we die to that old law and experience the newness of life? Well, it's exactly what the first verse of our text tells us. Look at Hebrews 9, 15. It says this, therefore he, Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Now, what this verse does is it really serves as a summary of the rest of the chapter. You could take everything in the rest of the chapter and use it to point directly back to what's in this verse. And this verse really gives us kind of a logical flow. 
It says this, there is this new covenant, but the only way to get to it is Jesus Christ. He's the mediator. He's the one that brings us to God who has made this covenant with us. Second, in this new covenant, God desires to give himself to us. He desires to give us an eternal inheritance, undefiled, imperishable, will never fade away. This is God's desire in the new covenant. But then it says this, but that's only made possible through death. It says, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So the only means by which we can die to the old covenant regulations and laws and be brought into all the realities of the new covenant, including this new inheritance, is through the means of a death. Every new covenant blessing, every promise of God for you, every single thing God wants to give you, everything you were created for is only made available to you because there was a death. This is the reason that we cherish the old rugged cross. Because it's the means by which everything God wants to give us is now available to us. So listen to how the author fleshes that out. If you're there in Hebrews 9, say amen. Listen as I read from verse 15. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. So that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant for where a will is involved the death of the one who made it must be established for a will takes effect only at death since it's not in force as long as the one who made it is alive therefore not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood for when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and he sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Verse 22. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf." Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Verse 27, and just as it is appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. There is a lot of words in that text. 
There's a lot of symbolism. There's a lot that points us back really from chapter four all the way to this moment. And there is a lot to be said, but in the midst of all of that, the really one clarifying idea is that we should cherish the cross of Jesus Christ because of what it means for us. Let me tell you why we should cherish the cross. The first reason is this, we cherish the cross because we have no inheritance without the cross. Write that down. We have no inheritance without the cross. One of the things about covenants is that they show us God's desire to have a relationship with us because covenants are relational agreements. So without even getting into the details of any of the covenants, the fact that God makes covenants says something to us about God. Everything God does is revealing something to us about himself. This is why when we're reading scripture, we ask the question, what does this tell us about God? And so it is that the covenants and the existence of them tells us that God wants a relationship with us. He, he wants to bring us to himself. And the reason that's important is this, is because we never seek God, God always has to seek us. So if there's ever gonna be any relationship, God always has to initiate it. And if God did not initiate it, there would be no relationship. I just think about that first covenant with Adam and Eve. God made a covenant with Adam, which was quickly broken, not because God didn't keep his part, because Adam and Eve didn't keep their part. But here they are, having broken the covenant, having sinned, and immediately what comes over them is what comes over any of us when we sin, and that is incredible shame. And so they run and they hide from God. It says they were naked and they were ashamed. Now listen, if God would have taken this attitude, well, you're the ones that messed up, you ought to come back to me. I mean, you know what you did. I'm gonna wait right here, and when you're ready to get things right, come on back and we'll talk about it. If God would have done that, there would have never been a restoration of relationship because none of us in our sin desire God. Romans 3 is very, three is very clear. No one desires God, no one seeks after God. And so if there's ever gonna be a relationship, God has to initiate, and so he did. Have you ever thought about the beauty of that picture when God goes and calls out, Adam, where are you? He sees them in their nakedness and their shame. And you know what he does? He sacrifices an animal and gives them clothes, pointing us forward to the fact that God still, through Christ, covers our shame and our sin through a sacrifice. He clothes them and he goes after them. And in every one of these covenants, the covenant with Noah, the covenant with Abraham, the covenant with David, every covenant says God is coming after us in order to initiate a relationship with us. And what's even more amazing than that is not only that God is coming to us to initiate a relationship, but what God wants to do in that relationship is give us an eternal inheritance. You see those words? He has given us and promised us an eternal inheritance. What an unbelievable thought that God is not just cultivating a church, he's not just getting servants, He's getting children. Hebrews 2.10 says God's desire is to bring many sons to glory. And we've talked about this in length, particularly in our sermon in Hebrews 2, that one of the reasons God calls everyone sons is because in the first century, only sons got inheritance. And so what he's saying to all the ladies in the house is you get treated like a son. 
You get in on everything everybody else gets. You get the inheritance of the father. And so God is bringing children in and he's saying, I have so much that I want to give you. I want to give you this inheritance. But an inheritance is established by a will. And this is exactly what he talks about in verses 16 and 17. God has a will. It says, for where a will is involved, verse 16, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it's not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Now, you know this. It's just an illustration. The only way you get in on the will is if you're listed in the will and the one who made the will dies. And so it's using this as an illustration as the way in which we get in on all of the inheritance that is promised to us. And the answer is this, is that the will of God is activated at the death of Jesus Christ. And we begin to experience his inheritance at the moment we come into a relationship with him. So if you find out that you have been left something in someone's will, there's two primary questions you have. Number one, are they rich? I'm just being honest. That's what you want to know. If they have $7 million in debt, it's really not good news that you've been left in their will. Okay? So you want to know if they're rich. And then you just kind of want to know if they're in good health. I mean, what's, how, you know, how long are we going here? Like, are we, are we close? Are we far? I've never thought that, but I know you're thinking that. That, you know, it, how long is this going to be? <laughs> And so here, here's this idea that we got left in a will. And the reality of what's saying here is this will includes, listen, everything that God has. And this will was enacted at the moment in which Jesus died. So Jesus has already died, meaning we have already been left the inheritance. At the moment you come to Christ, you begin to experience the inheritance that is yours enacted by the death of Jesus Christ. This is why you have these glorious passages like Ephesians 1. And you may have, you may have not thought about this before. You may have not thought about this idea of inheritance, but it's a huge theme in scripture. I mean, even going back to Abraham, God makes a covenant with Abraham. Says, Abraham, if you'll trust me and follow me. I will give you the inheritance of nations. I will give you the inheritance of descendants. I will give you the inheritance of land. I will give you the inheritance of blessing. Every covenant comes with inheritance. And so here's the new covenant reality. Ephesians 1.3. In Jesus Christ, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places belongs to you. Everything. Everything God has now belongs to you. This is why in one of the most precious little phrases in the New Testament, Luke 12, 32, Jesus says this, fear not little children, for it is the father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. <laughs> what does the father want to give you? The kingdom. What kind of blessings are yours? Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Romans 8 says that we have been adopted into the family of God. We become sons of God. And listen to this phrase, joint heirs with Jesus. Meaning the only one that deserves an inheritance is Jesus. But when you are united with Jesus by faith, you get in on every bit of inheritance that God has. Do you realize the significance of that? God wants to give you everything. 
And when you come to Christ, you get some little taste of it and experiences of it. But for all of eternity, what he's going to do for his children is give you more and more and more and more of himself. So why do we cling to the old rugged cross? Why do we cherish the cross? Because by the cross, we get everything God has. Everything God has enacted at the death of Jesus You're stated in his will, and it's all yours. That's why we cherish the cross. We not only cherish the cross because we have no inheritance without the cross, we cherish the cross because we have no forgiveness without the cross. Write that down. We have no forgiveness without the cross. You might have noticed a familiar verse in Hebrews 9, verse 22. It says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. If you've been raised in church, you know that verse. We hear that verse a lot. You might have also noticed as we read that there's a lot of emphasis on blood in Hebrews 9. Six times in verses 18 through 22, it mentions blood. And if if that idea of blood gets confusing, what I would encourage you to do is when you read the word blood, just replace it with the word death. So every time you see the word blood, it is referring to to death. But then why is it that blood and death is such a central part of our relationship to the Lord? Like, do you realize central to our faith that we come to sing about and celebrate and get happy about is blood and death? The reason is simple, because in Genesis 2, 17, we're told that sin brings death. Romans 3, 23, the wages of sin is death. So when Adam and Eve sinned, God said the punishment for that sin will be death. And at the moment they sinned, something died inside of them. Something very real died inside of them. The very life of God that was in them died. And now they have no heartbeat for God. They're spiritually dead, which Ephesians 2 says is still a reality for all of us who were born. Why? Because the life, the spiritual life in us died. And then we start to deteriorate from the inside out. And now physical death is a reality. And no matter whether it's spiritual death or physical death, it's all because of sin. So death exists because sin exists. The wages of sin is death. And since all of us have sinned, all of us have a death sentence on us. And say, why is verse 22 true? Why is it true that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins? And the reason is simply this, because sin has to be paid for. And the punishment is always always death. Something has to die. But one of the things we learn from the old covenant, as we look at all of those copies and shadows, is that God in his grace, listen, has in every covenant provided a substitute. He has provided a way that the penalty for sin could be taken by someone else. So the high priest would offer sacrifices year after year for the sins of the people. That was just a copy. The reality is in Jesus Christ that he is the great high priest who has sacrificed himself once and for all, as it says in verse 24, on our behalf. As it says in verse 26, so that at the end of the age, he would put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. 
I want to teach you this morning a, a theological phrase. Two reasons. Number one, because it's glorious. And number two, because you are not just normal churchgoers and you can handle it. All right? Here it is. Penal substitution. The word penal means punishment. So uh, a government will have a penal code. What does that mean? Well, it lists all of the punishments for every offense. It's a penal code. Penal substitution is a reference to the fact that every sin has to be paid for, but God in his grace has provided through Jesus a penal substitution, meaning Jesus takes upon himself on our behalf the punishment for all of our sins, a penal substitute. It is the most glorious and beautiful truth of the gospel that all of your punishment was put upon Jesus. This is why Isaiah 53 says this, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds, we are healed. This is why 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says, the one who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. R.C. Sproul helped me understand this many years ago when he asked this question, why couldn't God just forgive us? Like, why did Jesus have to die? Why could God just say, hey, listen, I, I know, but don't worry about that one. Like, I, I know, you didn't mean to do that one. We're gonna look past that one. Or, or why didn't God say, well, I, I knew you meant to do that one. But let's just, let's you and I make an agreement. Let's just, let's just not deal with that one. Why could God not do it that way? Because it was necessary for who God is and it was necessary for who we are. God must remain holy and just. You don't want a God who's not just. You don't want a God who doesn't bring justice, who doesn't make things right. We look at the injustice in our world and one of the only hopes we have is that one day God will bring justice, amen? He will make all wrongs right. What a terrible thing to know that we have a God that is not just. And he has to be holy. Like what if we had a God that was sinful and could go against his promises and was not pure and clean and his motives weren't pure and his actions weren't pure? God must remain holy and just. But we're sinners. And so if God just said, don't worry about it, well then God has gone against his own character and he can't do that. And so what God has decided to do is this. He's not just going to look past your sins. He's going to punish Jesus for your sins. Like you got to get this. God doesn't just forget sins. God doesn't just say, don't worry about it. God takes all of the wrath that you deserve for every sin that has ever been committed. And he punishes Jesus for it. The fullness of the wrath of God poured out upon Jesus Christ as our substitute. Without the cross of Jesus Christ, there would be no forgiveness for our sins. This is why Romans 3.26 says this. The cross of Jesus allows Jesus to be both just and the justifier. The cross allows Jesus to remain just and yet justify us, declare us righteous by using Jesus as the means by which our sins get forgiven. So why, why do we cherish the cross? Because on the cross, every sin you've ever committed was laid upon him and paid for at that moment. 
We cherish the cross because by it, we get everything God has. We cherish the cross because by it, our sins were laid up on him and paid for. But the final reason we cherish the cross is because we have no hope without the cross. We have no inheritance. We have no forgiveness. And the final one is this. We have no hope without the cross. There's another familiar verse in Hebrews 9. As a matter of fact, Hearing me read this chapter, you might have thought, hey, I knew that verse, but I had no idea where it was. There's a couple of those in this chapter. Verse 27 says this, it is appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. You've heard that. It's a rather sobering statement, isn't it? I mean, first of all, it, it affirms that you have an appointment with death, and God has established it. Thankfully, it's not like the doctor's office where he gives us a little card and tells us exactly what it is, but you have an appointment, every one of you, with death. And God has made the appointment. There's no escaping this. The reason it's so foolish to just be worried about your death, it's already been established. You're going to die. And there's an appointed time for it. God has made an appointment for your death. The second sobering fact is that after that death, there's something else. That's not the end. You don't just go to sleep. Everything just doesn't go dark. After the death is, is a judgment. It is appointed unto man to die once and then the judgment. But look at the first two words of verse 28. They're absolutely incredible. It is an appointed in a man once to die and then the judgment. So Christ. What that means is this. In the same way, Christ. In the same way, Christ also died once and experienced judgment. Because look what it says. It is appointed in a man to die once. And then it says, so Christ having been offered once, Jesus died once. And after that death comes judgment. And the reason Jesus was judged was not because of his sin, but look at what it says, to bear the sins of many. I want you to imagine dying and standing before God, a holy and just God, and there on paper is a ledger of every sin you've ever committed. Every thought, every action, every intention, even like the good deed you did with a bad intention listed there, all of them. Every single one, nothing has gone unnoticed. Every single sin, every moment of pride, every moment of anger, all of them listed. And God looks at you and goes, well, what are we gonna do with that? You have something to say for that? And we just begin to stutter. We don't know what to say. I mean, what do we do with that list? Because they're all true. <laughs> all of those are true. As a matter of fact, we might be surprised there's not more. But then imagine that you stand before God and what happens is this. Here's a ledger of all of your sins, but they're hard to see because they're covered in blood. Because every single one of those sins has already been paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so your ledger is clean because of the death of Jesus Christ. That's exactly what he's saying. Jesus experienced the judgment for you so that when you died, you don't fear the judgment of God for your sins. Instead, you live with the hopeful expectation of good when you die. 
But that's not because God just looked past him. It's because Jesus paid for every single sin that you have ever committed. And that's where we find our hope. It says that so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, look at this, will appear a second time. Because he died and he was buried and he rose And he ascended to the right hand of the Father where he is there in bodily form. He will never die again. He has defeated death for all of eternity. And it says he's going to return. But this time he's not returning to deal with sins because he already did that. This time he is coming back to save those who eagerly wait for him. To save those who have placed their hope in Jesus. To save those who believe that Jesus alone is their hope of salvation. I'm not going to spend much time in this, but we have done a massive disservice when we've thought about salvation only in past tense. Well, I got saved or I've been saved. The Bible says you have been saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. Meaning that moment when you gave your life to Christ, which every one of you has to have the moment, listen to me, you have to have a moment in which you decide that you don't want to pay for your own sins, but you want Jesus to pay for them for you. And you say, Jesus, I want you to be my sacrifice and I trust you as my sacrifice. That moment is the first moment in which you are saved. And then God continues to save you by working in your life. And he gives you a little bit of his inheritance. How? Because he already died. So it's already available to you. When we come together, we sing and we experience the joy of corporate worship. That's just a little bit of the inheritance. But one day you will be fully saved when Christ returns and the fullness of his inheritance will be yours for all of eternity. And every moment of eternity getting more and more of his inheritance. So he's coming back to to rescue those, to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And this is why we say when we think about the fact that the death of Jesus Christ accomplished our redemption, it paid for our sins, and he will one day return. This is why we sing, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Because my only hope in life and death is Jesus. So why, why do we cherish the old rugged cross? Because in it, we get everything God has. Because in it, all of our sins are forgiven. Because in it, we find hope in life and death. Our only hope in dying and standing before the judgment is what happened on the cross and our only hope of not constantly running away from God in shame is what happened on the cross of Jesus Christ. I open this text on Monday morning as is my habit and I began to just read and read and read and read and I was just overwhelmed with all of the details and, and all of the things that are here all of the confusing verses. And as I put the sermon together and the Lord began to give me clarity, as I stepped back away from this text and really just began to meditate on it, something became really clear to me. That at the end of all there is to be said about this text, the one truth is simply this. That every single one of us is going to die. And those who have Jesus get every bit of the goodness of God. And those who don't experience the eternity of the wrath of God paying for their own sins. That's it. That's it. And it is possible for you 
to not fear death and to be confident that when you stand before God, you will be cleared and allowed into heaven to experience all of his goodness for eternity. Why? One reason, because you have placed your faith in what Jesus has already done for you. Nothing to be added to it. No amount of works you can do to do any more than Jesus has already done. It's simply acknowledging you're a sinner. You deserve death and judgment. But you choose to trust Jesus as your substitute. And rest in what he's done. So when you stand before God and he says, why should I let you into heaven? You only have one real answer. Because Jesus paid it all. Because he, he died for me and I'm resting in what he has done. So there are two responses to our message this morning. First, if you know the Lord, can I plead with you to cherish the cross, to cling to the cross, to not just allow it to be a symbol that hangs on a wall or on a necklace, but it is that which brings you life every moment of the day. You are constantly clinging to the cross. The other response is for those of you who are not confident of what will happen when you stand before God on judgment day. Can I plead with you today to call upon the name of the Lord, ask him to save you, acknowledge you're a sinner and say, I don't want to pay for my own sins. Jesus, I'm asking you to be my substitute and he will save you. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this morning. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen to this sermon. May you trust and follow Jesus more and lead others to do the same. For more information, visit us at pabc.org.